Back in ancient Rome, there were street stands set up throughout cities, even fairly small cities, and larger towns even, that served food and drink to passers-by. These street vendors seem to have been fairly standard civilizational accoutrements, even further back in the days of the early Greeks, with some meals enjoyed together with family for special occasions or on holidays, but generally meals seem to have been consumed alone sometimes produced on small personal fire pits, but often, again, especially in more populated areas, purchased from a vendor and eaten either on the spot or while walking to their next destination. There's evidence that the same was true in many Asian cultures and African cultures and Middle Eastern cultures. This has long been a worldwide trend. There are also traditions, of course, found throughout history and all around the planet that involve sitting down with one's family or friends to share a meal. But the practical reality, the day-to-day -day life not shown on the paintings or glazed onto pottery, indicates that these were usually periodic, idealized situations, not the common everyday routine. The preponderance of portable foods in all of these cultures, wrapped in dough or fried to rigidity, or packed into small boxes, or rolled in cheap materials like leaves or husks or newspaper, this is all a testament to these foods' walkable, transportable utility. So fast food as a concept, food that is mass-produced, often systematized in its production, and which can be prepared and served very quickly, usually to people who are on their way to somewhere or something else, that's been around for a while. The drive-through version of the concept, though, originated in the United States in the 1950s. It's during that decade, in fact, in 1951, that the term fast food officially entered the English-language lexicon, showing up in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary for the very first time. The drive-through, or in many cases, especially at first, the drive-in or drive-up restaurant model was spearheaded by early companies, some whose names you might recognize, but some of the largest and most successful today, like McDonald's and KFC, didn't get started until relatively late in the game, 1955 and 1952, respectively. Again, around the time that the term fast food was formalized. Both of these companies were operating on a far smaller scale, with a single or a couple locations apiece, for a decade or two before that, but they didn't become fast food companies until later. The true innovators in this space, instead, are arguably White Castle, A&W, and Howard Johnson's. White Castle was the first fast food hamburger chain, and was founded in Wichita, Kansas in 1921 though the restaurant they initially founded, which they later converted into a drive-up high-speed burger stand, was founded in 1916. A&W, a company that makes root beer, among other beverages, introduced franchising to this space, meaning they built the brand and produced the marketing materials and many of the other things a person might need to open a soft drink and fast food drive-up restaurant but they sold those materials and the right to use that brand to other people, to franchisees, instead of doing it all themselves. 
And the key to that success, the real money under that business model, and this tends to be the case today too, by the way, is in the syrups for their soft drinks that they sold to the franchisees, the sugary chemical concentrates that are mixed on site with bubbly water to make sodas. So there was money in selling the brand to people who wanted to use it, but the real cash flowed from being the exclusive supplier of the main ingredient of the soft drinks that they sold at a decently high markup to all of these locations. And again, still to this day, soft drinks tend to be one of the biggest money makers. They are incredibly cheap to produce, and each sale of that particular product brings in a whole lot of profit. And Howard Johnson's, a company that started as a small corner pharmacy in Massachusetts, but which went on to become a popular soda fountain, and then an ice cream shop, and then a collection of concession stands along the beach, eventually used the money earned from these other projects to build a restaurant that went on to become the first franchised restaurant. Think Waffle House or IHOP or Cracker Barrel or TGI Fridays or Applebee's. All of these franchised restaurant concepts harken back, in a way, to Howard Johnson's, a company that today operates a hotel chain instead, but which innovated in this space by offering consistent branded menus, supplies, and decorations to their franchisees. The last Howard Johnson restaurant closed in 2017, which is fairly remarkable considering that there were over 1,000 locations throughout North America during its heyday. That franchised restaurant model lives on through other companies, though, and A&W's model for fast food drive-ups flourished well beyond the A&W brand, very far beyond their brand, actually, as fast food of that kind in the U.S. alone is worth about $200 billion a year, and there are nearly 200,000 franchised, quick-service, quote-unquote, restaurants in the U.S. as of 2016. And White Castle's hamburger chain concept obviously lives on, both as the White Castle brand, but also in companies like McDonald's and Wendy's and Burger King, and many, many others around the world. This style of Americanized fast food, in fact, makes up the lion's share of fast food income in many countries. McDonald's brought in about $25 billion worldwide in 2016. Subway brought in just over $11 billion in the U.S. alone. And Yum! Brands, the parent company of Taco Bell, KFC, Pizza Hut, and Wing Street, among others, including, up until 2011, A&W Restaurants, they brought in about $6.4 billion worldwide in 2016. Now, the background of fast food, in my opinion at least, is fascinating as it parallels and even influences the development of many different technologies and has evolved over the years to fulfill the needs of many different people, most especially folks who work, who have kids, who have fast-paced lifestyles. And even increasingly, though still somewhat slowly and awkwardly, they're trying to fulfill the needs of those people while also not killing them providing healthier choices as the bulk of the population, in many developed countries in particular, has shifted their food spending toward less devastatingly unhealthy options. And that's become the angle from which many of us view fast food today, it would seem. 
Yes, this is a space that helped expand the reach of the suburbs, that helped make cars and the car-owning lifestyle sexy, that grew across vast landscapes as roads and highways and superhighways also grew, connecting all of these cities and towns, and which tucked themselves into tiny little spaces within big cities, raising real estate values while also providing affordable food options to people who might otherwise struggle with how to afford their meals each day. This is an industry that's had a whole lot of impact and has contributed to the direction that history has taken. But the technologies required to do all these things have proven to be double-sided. Yes, it's amazing that we have preservatives that allow us to store food far longer than before and in widely variable conditions. This is arguably why we are able to have long-standing research stations in Antarctica and in orbit around the planet. And this has proven fundamental to alleviating hunger around the world during short-term droughts and famines and as part of longer-term plans to pull war-torn regions out of the ashes. The people there have to eat while they get back on their feet and attempt to rebuild their infrastructure. And the only real option that can survive the complex systems required to ship and distribute food to and throughout these regions over a long period of time makes use of these preservatives, packing, shipping, and preparatory technologies that have been honed by the likes of McDonald's and KFC. The double-sidedness here, though, is that these same technologies often reduce the nutritional benefits of the food being preserved. Yes, it's allowed us to ship more calories to places that need them than ever before, but in the years since World War II, when this industry first started to heat up, we've learned a lot about calories and vitamins and minerals, and we've learned that simply moving energy from one place to another in this way is not enough. Our bodies do not respond well to super-refined sugars and deep-fried everything. We have a lot to be thankful for, having benefited from these technologies. But we've also come to learn, especially in the last few decades, that there are severe consequences to these methods of preservation and distribution and preparation, especially on scale. They have their uses, but should probably, optimally, not be used except in very limited, very case-specific scenarios. And probably even then, in different ways than they have been used for the bulk of the last 70 years. What I want to talk about today is food, and particularly how we consume food, the systems that we've built to help us distribute food, and some of the consequences of the global food network that we've built. Some of them very positive consequences, but some of them incredibly, devastatingly negative. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The world of food science is kind of a wild place. It's a blurry place, which is strange because at its core, it's actually a relatively simple, straightforward thing. The textbook, Food Science, defines food science as, quote, the application of basic science and engineering to study the physical, chemical, and biochemical nature of foods and the principles of food processing, end quote. So it's utilizing the exploratory and explanatory tools that we have available to better grok food on a very deep level, while also studying things like how we meld and prepare that food. 
Some folks in this field studied the fundamental chemistry of food, so what an apple is made of, but also how it interacts chemically with other substances. Some food scientists study how food is manufactured, how ingredients are combined with other ingredients to make new things, new foods. Food microbiologists focus on the microorganisms that live in our food and create our food, or in some cases contaminate our food. And other food scientists figure out how to prevent that contamination through preservation methods and quality control systems and technologies. Still other food scientists study food substitutes, which allows us to replace certain fats and sugars and calories with other substances, while still maintaining the food's taste and texture and smell and coloration and so on. And another group of food scientists who specialize in sensory analysis can then tell those food replacement scientists if they've done a good job, since they study how consumers perceive the food that they buy and eat. The world of food science, then, seems to be fairly regimented and clear and focused, but it's been made blurry because of other factors that have impugned upon its domain, namely politics, economics, and advertising. Politics warps food science because it is politically practical to leverage food research to justify public policies, be they for school or taxation or food-related welfare purposes. In some cases, the data informs the policies. In other cases, the reverse is true. A powerful lobbying group for the sugar industry convinces the government to clamp down on fat, or the bacon industry convinces a few politicians in bacon-producing regions to help bury well-regarded, well-researched scientific findings that say that bacon is a carcinogen. And yes, both of these examples are real, and yes, there is actually a bacon lobby, and a decently powerful one. Economics also shape this space, partly through politics, as I just mentioned, via lobbyists, but partly because these industries can themselves fund the research that's being conducted. And although we don't see revolving doors in the same quantity that we do in politics, where politicians who make decisions that favor a particular group can then go work for that group with a generous salary after they leave public life, we do still see research being conducted and then buried when the findings are not to the liking of the group that funded it. Similarly, we sometimes see what's called p-hacking, which essentially means moving the goalposts within a study to demonstrate meaningful figures when, in fact, there are no meaningful figures in order to favor the priorities of the group that is funding the study. So even if they can't find researchers who can be outright bribed or threatened to make them come to certain conclusions, they can still shuffle the numbers around to make it seem as if they discovered something meaningful and in a particular group's favor, and that group can then use that data in their public relations efforts moving forward, and it will look legitimate. And advertising is also an increasing problem within the world of food science, because science reporting, that is, producing articles and reports based on recent discoveries within the food science world, is often influenced, either overtly or covertly, by advertising. What this means in practice is that the reporters, some with full knowledge of what they're doing and some out of ignorance, not knowing enough about the subject they're reporting on, which is part of the problem, will try to increase the wow value of their work to garner more click-throughs and their potential virality on social media by focusing on unimportant aspects of 
or incorrect interpretations of what was actually discovered. And when this happens, it's typically because the publication for which they work, which signs their paycheck, is itself dependent on advertising, which means the metrics by which they live or die are related to clicks and views and shares, all of which inform their bottom line. Popularity metrics force these entities to pay a decent amount of attention to that type of thing when they publish, which in turn puts pressure on reporters to attract that attention. And that results in articles that are just wrong, pieces that are sometimes kind of right, but in a weird way that doesn't actually focus on the important parts of the study, and pieces that are presented as one thing, as a cure for cancer, as a weird new way to fight bad breath, as a near-certain death knell for avocados or coffee harvests, when in reality, the research only alludes to a minute possibility for such things, or actually shows something else entirely. And this other, actually real thing that the report does say, then only receives a minor mention in the fifth paragraph, or no mention at all. So real science can happen, but can then be misinterpreted or misrepresented or misconstrued while being communicated via these advertising-reliant channels. On top of this, we've seen a steady rise in the perceived legitimacy of all kinds of pseudoscience, as the publishing and production worlds have been upended by networks like Medium and YouTube. This shift has been arguably very good in that it's removed many of the traditional gatekeepers that once would have blocked the way and filtered out folks who wanted to get their work out into the world and garter an audience, but who did not fit within the traditional cookie-cutter ideal of what science journalists and other publishers looked like. But it's also a negative thing, in the sense that lacking gatekeepers of any kind, we also don't have any kind of quality filter. So we see a whole lot of nonsense being propagated and popularized by these same platforms and tools. For every well-reasoned and researched exploration into fundamental scientific principles presented as animated videos on YouTube, we also see companies like Goop, which is run by a celebrity who seems dead set on promoting only the most remarkably nonsensical products, backed by easily disprovable pseudoscience, but which nonetheless shares the mantle of legitimacy with actual science because of the perception created by good branding and our new gatekeeperless publishing reality. It's right there alongside the real stuff because celebrities are often taken as seriously as scientists now when we talk science. And this creates a truly bad, misinformed situation for folks who have all this information, but few accessible means of discerning the difference between facts and whatever it is Gwyneth Paltrow is selling this week. So the goops of the world confuse things, but even beyond the clearly horrible and at times dangerous snake oil that's out there, there's another less absolutely negative, but also in practice, often quite negative entity in this space. And that's the world of dietary and healthy living gurus. Now, I have no reason to doubt the intentions of most of these people, but the fact remains that there are a million different diet books making a million different diet claims, and almost all of them are zero sum. We are right. This diet model is the correct one and all the others are hogwash. Some of these diet models, which usually end up morphing into full-blown brands, because that's the most lucrative path for this type of business model, they actually do involve real, legit disagreements between people who know what they're talking about when it comes to food science. 
And just as it's said that religion flourishes in the gaps between the islands of scientific knowledge, we still know little enough about this space, about food science, that many very serious and popular dietary dogmas have emerged, each with their own prophets, their own good books, and their own set of rituals to which adherents must abide, their own labels to apply and communities to join. There is an obvious similarity here between diets that purport to increase one's lifespan, like the newfangled collection of low-calorie and fasting diets, and the hardcore vegan diets, and the just-as-hardcore paleo and paleo-derivative diets, between those and the religious promise of heaven, or its non-Christian equivalents, the rewards you will purportedly receive after a life well-lived. It would be tricky to find a more ideal selling point for a philosophy or set of ideas, for the seller anyway, than a better-than-anything-else reward that arrives at the end of one's life. Because if this diet or religion is proven wrong, the person who was sold on that snake oil is too dead to do anything about it, but has already given their money throughout their life in the form of tithes or buying the right brands of salad dressing or cookbooks to the person selling that ideology. So that's another facet of this confusing muddle that has fogged up the world of food science, making a space that should be fairly quantitative and well-documented and even a little bit boring, instead rife with conflicts of interest, intentional misinterpretations of data, and a whole lot of money invested in research that seems to support a particular life extension system or which backs an up-and-coming politician's platform of taxing certain products at a higher rate than others. I should probably clarify before moving on that I don't mean to trash talk these dietary methodologies universally. I actually think it's great to have a diversity of beliefs and points of view and ways of living and eating and everything else. I am very against the intentional use of falsehoods to bang the drama for a new diet plan and the smearing of good science to try to legitimize a practice that has been proven pointless or even harmful over and over again when studied scientifically. But I do think that we are stronger when we have a diversity of approaches and opinions available. And there's a lot of gray area in many of these food-related fields right now. So it's important to keep an open mind. But it is important to note that if you buy into a particular religion or diet that denies the legitimacy of all other religions and diets, statistically, you are almost certainly wrong. All those other belief models probably are too. In all likelihood, none of what we've discovered thus far, when it comes to the origin of the universe or the optimal way to consume healthily, is 100% correct. And that's been the case throughout history, as we continue to learn more about fundamental physics and nutritional science. So we are all kind of gambling here, even when our particular beliefs are couched in the best marketing materials that money can buy and waves of popularity that can last centuries or weeks, depending on which monarch happens to be in power, or which diet brand has paid for the most expensive PR agency to fluff their reputation this week. If you feel too certain about your beliefs in either of these spaces, you are probably setting yourself up to be disappointed, to experience severe cognitive dissonance as we learn more about the universe and ourselves and about food. That or to simply ignore all of this new data, which would be equally personally harmful if you do want to actually know things. Any community that requires you to give up your cognitive capabilities and ability to question wrong-seeming dogma 
in order to be a member is probably not a community that you want to be a part of anyway. So that's something to keep in mind here with this entire discussion. All that said, there are a few aspects of food science that most, if not all, thinkers in this space can broadly agree upon. Humans need a blend of vitamins and minerals to survive, for instance. We use calories taken in through food to function, which is just encapsulated energy that our bodies can use for a variety of purposes. But those calories are supplemented with all kinds of more specific things that keep our bodies healthy and ensure we are capable of using those calories appropriately. Beyond that, it becomes trickier, in part because there are a lot of different theories about what ratios and quantities of these different components we should be ingesting, whether our diets should be heavy on olive oil or lettuce, full of red meat or bean curds, balanced perfectly between all available options or slanted substantially in favor of some collection of available nutrients over all of the others. We don't yet know the specifics of what's optimal here, assuming there is indeed one diet to rule them all, which I personally very seriously doubt, but you never know. But what we do know, what we have a whole lot of data to back up, is that in the post-fast food world, life has been defined in part by the myriad diseases and conditions, some of which we don't even know what to call. Are they chronic illnesses, environmental allergies of some kind, habits that are chemically hard to shake, actual diseases, whether genetic or transmitted contemporarily? We don't know. We don't know what to call these things. But we live in a world filled with and outlined by epidemics of obesity, of heart disease, of sensitivities and allergies, of different flavors of depression and inflammation and cancer of seemingly every cell in our bodies. Most, and probably all, of these diseases and conditions have a great many causes. Just like the one diet to rule them all theory, it's a far nicer thought to assume that we can make a singular groundbreaking discovery and suddenly change everything that's wrong with society overnight. But the reality is that these are most likely multifaceted problems, some of which may be connected to a great many others and some that will have a more focused root cause. Many of them are probably currently being addressed in very wrong, incorrect ways. And with others, perhaps, we are just not far enough along the path of knowledge to know how to handle them, even though we're on the right path so far. But one thing we do know is that many of these issues emerged around the same time as our diets changed in some very fundamental ways. Post-World War II, everything in the way that we eat changed very suddenly. And food was just one sector that evolved into something brand new in a very short period of time. So there are a lot of variables that go in to this sudden change and all of these illnesses and conditions. But we can draw a direct line between our increased reliance on pre-packed, preserved, heavily processed foods and the dramatic increases in obesity and heart disease that we've seen in particular. And we can do this because these types of foods arrived in different regions around the world at different times. And in each case, the former arrived and the latter followed soon after. So we have found ourselves in a world of caloric abundance with all kinds of food delivery capabilities, 
not to mention a crazy variety of dietary options at our fingertips and alongside all the good that has stemmed from this revised amalgamation of food-related systems and technologies, we've discovered new and exciting ways to totally mess things up. So that groundwork laid. The article that I would like to unspool today comes from Quartz, and it's entitled Fake Processed Food is Becoming an Epidemic in African Urban Life. This piece takes the conversation that we're having in a somewhat different direction, but it does all connect back together eventually, so bear with me. This article describes a collection of recent instances in which food fraud occurred, specifically in African nations, and some of the people on the receiving end of this fraudulent food have become ill or died as a consequence of consuming it. Some particularly heinous instances of food fraud have involved the selling of infant formula that contains no protein, while in other cases people have died or become violently ill after consuming recycled oil that was discarded as being unfit for human consumption, but which was repackaged and sold as cooking oil. A pair of 14-year-olds died and two others were hospitalized after eating tainted biscuits, and it's currently thought that these snacks were either stored incorrectly or were, in fact, old food repackaged and sold as new food. This piece also notes that in Ghana, the current food adulteration trend is to lace palm oil with a food coloring called Sudan 4, which is a carcinogen that makes the oil look more pure and fresh on shelves. In Uganda, an embalming agent called formalin is being used to preserve meat, to keep flies from settling on it at the market, but also to keep it a nice, healthy-looking color, despite the meat being old and laced with a harmful chemical. Perhaps most brazen, and this is an issue that's caused some of the most fur in the region, in large part because of how common it's become, but also because of how many people it's impacting, is the practice of replacing rice with rice husks, which are generally discarded as trash during the rice harvesting process, or, in some cases, with plastic rice, little plastic bits that look like rice and which are mixed in with large bags of rice, making up a significant percentage of the total bag's volume, but which, for obvious reasons, have no nutritional value or, presumably, flavor. You're just eating tiny bits of plastic. Now, this is a very serious issue in the region because in many cases, the people who are being victimized are people who have no recourse. They're not wealthy. They often don't know who victimized them. Generally, the person who sold them the plastic rice that wrought havoc on their gut for a week or the infant formula that stunted their baby's growth was not the person who actually swapped out the legit goods for non-legit goods. They, too, were victimized, though in a less devastating way, economically, not physically. Their reputation may be ruined if they're called out, but they're not consuming toxic oil, thinking it's safe for cooking. They're just being played by fraudsters. Amplifying this problem is the lack of well-enforced, well-defined food standards in most of these countries, and the fact that, in most cases, the food they are buying does not come from the farm next door or the infant formula plant in a neighboring city. It arrives at the very tail end of an often remarkably long path that zigzags and meanders between many different countries and many, many different hands, which provides many opportunities for bad behavior. 
Now add to this already confounding situation the fact that the prices paid for these products are relatively low, which in turn inspires those selling them to cut corners wherever they can to make a profit. And that leads to a scenario in which everyday people are open for abuse in a facet of their lives that they can't just walk away from. Everyone needs to eat. This isn't like accidentally buying knockoff Beanie Babies or something like that. Food is a necessity. So imagine the stress of not knowing whether what you're consuming, what you're preparing for your family, is what you think it is. If it's actually nutritious and good for them, or if it will do the opposite, poisoning them, or stunting their growth, or sending them to the hospital, or to an early grave. Growth stunting which occurs when children do not receive enough nutrients, enough food with the right vitamins and minerals, enough protein and calories. It affects, on average, around 34% of children under 5 years old on the African continent. In some northern parts of Africa, it gets as low as 15-20%, to 20%, but in some central and southern regions, it's over 40%. That's over 40% of all children, their growth, both physical and mental, in a variety of ways, stunted because of a lack of nutrition that would feed that growth. Some of this stunting takes place in the womb when the mother lacks proper nutrition while pregnant, and some takes place when the child is young and undergoing the initial growth spurt that forms the framework for how their body and mind will be set up for the rest of their life. This is a particularly pernicious problem in Africa for numerous reasons, but it's not limited to African countries. Most countries around the world have some pockets, even if small ones, of underserved citizens who for some reason or another do not have access to nutritional resources that would allow them to reach their full physiological potential. And the sort of food chain fraud that can in some cases cause stunted growth takes different shapes around the world as well. In 2013, foods advertised as beef and sold worldwide, but particularly in Europe, were instead found to partially contain or to be entirely made up of horse meat. Many beef burgers, during this round of horse meat-seeking, beef-testing research, was also found to contain pork, which is a serious taboo food item for some religious groups. And it was just mixed in with the beef, no warning on the label. In the United States, fish are regularly misidentified and mislabeled, both on grocery store shelves and in restaurants, by some estimates as much as half of the time, and in some cases, seemingly deliberately, to justify inflated prices, to make people think they're getting better fish than they are. Food fraud, then, is actually a global concern, and though it's arguably a much bigger deal that a mother in Ghana is being tricked into feeding her infant non-nutritious formula, than it is that a diner at a restaurant in the United States is paying a few bucks too much for common local fish in their entree. These sorts of abuses add up, especially when you consider how many types there are and that they can happen at all levels and steps in the global food distribution web, which is complex and which I will talk more about in a moment. First, though, let's talk about the different main categories of food fraud. There's adulteration, which is where a component of the finished product is fraudulent, replacing some of the flour in a loaf of bread with chalk, for instance, would be an example of adulteration, and one that was a common concern back in the 17th century in Europe. There's tampering, where a legit product with legit packaging is used in a fraudulent way, 
In 2003, a supermarket employee laced some of the ground beef they had for sale with insecticide in an attempt to get his supervisor in trouble. This is an example of tampering that made 111 people sick, including about 40 children and a pregnant woman. Next is what's called overrun, which is probably most easily illustrated by thinking about ice cream, which is a fairly heavily regulated food because the volume of the product can be easily inflated by adding more air during the freezing process. As a consequence, ice cream makers are limited by law to fluffing up their product by 100% at the maximum, lest they decide to reduce their own expenses by producing far more ice cream from the same quantity of ingredients, basically selling processed air to customers who don't know any better. Theft is another type of food fraud where, as you might expect, food is stolen and then sold as if it was procured legitimately. This is especially true of higher-end foods, but it's definitely not limited to the luxury market. Especially in lower-income regions, the snacks and other foodstuffs that will sell best at convenience stores tend to be the most highly sought after by thieves. Diversion is a type of fraud where legitimate goods are distributed beyond their intended markets, which is a legalistic way of saying that they're sold in the gray and black markets rather than wherever they're meant to be sold. Simulation fraud involves creating a fake product that is designed to look like a real product, but which is not a perfect carbon copy. This category includes products meant to coast on the success and good name of another product, but not to actually try to be that other product. Counterfeit, on the other hand, is fraud that involves copying the product and its packaging to the best of the fraudster's abilities. No subtlety, just a knockoff of the product, probably made more cheaply and with lower quality ingredients though. So there are a lot of different mechanisms for fooling the system, for fooling consumers, and for fooling the honest, hardworking, non-fraudster salespeople who receive fraudulent goods and then sell them without realizing it. Some of these methods of fraud are more common than others, and the commonality of them will vary from region to region based on all kinds of variables, including what regulations are in place and how well they are enforced, but also how open the markets are and how savvy the purveyors and consumers of goods happen to be. It's estimated by some experts that about 10% of the food that you buy at the grocery store, and yes, that's even in the developed world, is probably adulterated in some way. And remember, that means that some ingredient contained within the finished product is fraudulent. This estimate is close, but not perfectly aligned with one released by the International Chamber of Commerce, which estimates that 7% of the entire food supply contains fraudulent ingredients of some kind. So there's no precise, concrete data here, maybe for obvious reasons, because this is crime, and if we knew about all instances of it, we would probably have solved more of it than we have at this point. But experts who research this problem from various angles seem to think that there is a significant continuous presence of fraudulent goods throughout the global food system, not just within particular regions. Which is pretty humbling news, not just because there's the potential for harmful ingredients to be slipped into the process, which again is more likely to happen in places where victims don't have the means to fight back and press charges, but also because it creates an economic incentive for future bad behavior. 
replacing expensive ingredients, for example, with less expensive ingredients, but charging for those expensive ingredients means that you pocket more money. Get away with that for long enough, and you find yourself with a substantial advantage over your competitors, which then, in turn, leads to more entities in that space, your competitors, feeling like they also have to break the rules to commit this type of fraud in order to stand a chance in their industry. This perpetuates the cycle, but also increases the likelihood, over time, of dangerous health-related consequences for consumers, in addition to the monetary fleecing of customers that's taking place, because fraudulent activity as a whole will increase substantially. And Africa, as a continent, is kind of a microcosm for the rest of the world in this regard. A big part of why they are seeing this uptake in food fraud is that increasingly, their food is coming from far away and making trips to several different countries before landing in their markets and at their homes. That means there are more points of failure, more opportunities for abuse, and less chance of being caught if you are one of 20 different entities in a tangled web of service and ingredient providers who add something to a candy bar or a bag of rice before it reaches that consumer at the end of the line. In many places around the world today, especially in the developed world, a great deal of what we can purchase at the grocery store, and even at outdoor markets, at purveyors, where you might assume because it's more regional and less official seeming, like a farmer's market, a whole lot of what you buy there comes from the next city over, or halfway across the country, or three nations away, or on the other side of the planet. And this is a truly remarkable thing, if you think about it. The technological wizardry that's gone into producing food, inventing systems and infrastructure that allow us to get fresh fruits off-season, and nutritious food staples any time of year on any part of the planet, that's remarkable. And it's the consequence of the combined effort of scientists, engineers, inventors, entrepreneurs, family farm owners, grocery store managers, and other random people who had a good idea from around the world. This is a success of very big picture, widely inclusive human ingenuity. The other side of the coin, though, is that as a direct consequence of these increasingly complex systems, which make use of massive freighter ships, remarkably regular cargo plane routes, and a network of on-the-ground transportation from giant trucks to tiny scooters, all tied together with digital tags and RFID chips and scannable labels and climate-secure packaging, is that we've introduced a huge amount of complexity into a system that started out as a relatively simple machine. Product is made here, product is shipped to new location, product is sold to consumer at that new location. Today, there are many layers of shippers and suppliers. There are companies that add a single component to a packaged good before sending it off to one of a hundred other suppliers where it will receive yet another component. The complete product may be many dozens of steps away from being fully compiled and ready to seal up and distribute. Our specializations and distribution networks and whiz-bang ordering and organizational software have changed the world, and in many ways for the better, but they've also made the whole process many times more complex in the trade-off, which again introduces that many more opportunities for malevolent parties to slip something fraudulent into the system, and with a decent chance of doing so undetected. The bad news is that this trend doesn't show any sign of subsiding 
Yes, there is a popular movement, particularly in wealthier countries, that revolves around buying local, and there are many benefits, both economic and otherwise, to doing so. But there are also short and long-term problems that emerge alongside the buy local trend. It may be that your local raspberries suck, or the local supplier of raspberries is run by horrible people, but the raspberries grown in the country next door are cheaper, and they're way better, and they are produced by a company that operates in what you consider to be an ethical manner. So if you buy local under those circumstances, you are financially incentivizing the raspberry industry to produce worse products from a specific location rather than supporting a company that you believe should win out over their inferior opposition, but which just happens to be located in a different geographic region from you. So buying local is a thing that's happening, but the main shift here, numerically, is toward more globalization, more specialization, more complex machinery operating behind the scenes, so that we can, in general, get better, cheaper, the way we want it, more of the time. And that means the trajectory of food fraud is also likely to swing upward, increasing as the complexity, and importantly, the reliance on automation in this space, increases. Some types of fraud will no doubt be winnowed out of the system by new automation, but much of the fraud that happens today takes advantage of blind spots in these systems to function and flourish, and that seems very likely to continue to be the case. One possible solution here is increasing the size of and further empowering food industry and food industry adjacent regulators. Politically, right now, regulation that is increasing the power and oversight capabilities of government or government-aligned agencies, it's not something that most people are cheering for, and in some cases for very good reasons. But the evidence on this is pretty clear. The nations with higher food standards and governing bodies that focus on food, that regulate what's legal and what's not legal to sell, and which publish best practices so that companies that want to sell to their citizenry know how to do it legally. Those are the nations that don't have plastic rice. And historically, these same countries back before they had these food and drug administrations and regional equivalents, they did have plastic rice and chalky bread and watered down milk and ham doused in embalming fluid. Many of these issues disappeared with the advent of these regulations. And though there are still holes in these systems, and though the FDA can be a bummer for companies that make supplements and other products that have not been scientifically proven to work, and though these agencies can move at a glacial pace sometimes, possibly messing with our ability to innovate in certain spaces, the trade-offs generally seem to be worthwhile. They're not perfect, and they're not the only solution that we will want to have in place, but they do seem to do a decently good job of curtailing the most obvious and most common types of fraud that would otherwise occur within their jurisdiction. The much bigger hole to plug, though, is the global one. Because of our massively complex food system, it's now necessary to regulate not just one country's food web, but the whole world's. And although some regions, like the European Union, have food fraud networks in place, through which they can share information, about fraudsters between countries, increasing their ability to clamp down on criminals and companies that are not living up to their legal responsibilities as food producers or distributors, 
most ideal would be if every country had such an entity, which then plugged into a regional network of such entities, which then plugged into a global network of such entities, so that all of this information could be crunched together, sent back to regional law enforcement, and dealt with according to their local laws. This isn't something we are anywhere near to having at the moment, and there would be a lot of very bad ways to implement such a plan. Unless we want to end up with a global world government, for instance, we would want to make sure that the larger regulators primarily focus on supplying research and data and resources and collaborative tools to the smaller organizations, while those local, regional organizations are empowered to enforce and punish bad behavior. All the same, this does seem to be one of the less intrusive methods of alleviating a lot of this type of fraud internationally, even if it's a little bit boring compared to the high-flying technological solutions or back-to-basics, local-only movements that would eliminate a lot of the benefits of our current global food distribution network. But whatever we do, doing something in this space is important. Starvation does not necessarily imply no food. It can mean a lack of nutritious food. And we're seeing starvation of this kind in many places that shouldn't be experiencing such devastation. Devastation, by the way, which will impact not just this generation, but the next generation as well, at a minimum. It's important to recognize the value of these systems, the benefits they grant us, while also keeping their flaws and limitations in mind. Fast food helped us develop a lot of the technologies that now allow us to grow and produce and ship and sell good, wholesome produce around the world year-round. Recognizing that two-sided nature of this discussion could help us get it right, or more right, anyway, moving forward. It could allow us to find solutions in the existing, very flawed setup rather than hoping to find something new that hasn't been invented yet at some point in the undefined future. Not all problems in the world can be traced back to this disparity in nutritional access, but almost all of them are amplified by it in some way. Inequality, in particular, which is an increasing issue around the world in various different ways, between countries but also within countries, between people of different economic classes, Inequality is very much amplified by this type of nutritional kneecapping. A lack or shortage of nutritional access today can substantially influence outcomes for people that will not be born for decades. The conversation about inequality often gets mired in discussions about personal responsibility versus laziness, but cases like this illustrate why that is very often the wrong conversation to be having. It completely misses the point. It's not a lack of personal responsibility that leads families to purchase these well-concealed, systematically distributed, nutritionally stripped foods from their usual trusted food suppliers. That's like saying you are to blame if you buy aspirin that turns out to be poison from your local pharmacy. How could you possibly know? And how much time and psychological energy would it cost you to worry that every single source of food that you have available might actually be poisoning or starving you. What would that kind of legitimate concern do to your quality of life, to your sanity? That is the reality that many people around the world are facing right now, today, at this very moment. Food fraud 
is a multifaceted, remarkably complex problem that will not be easy to tackle. But the rationale for attempting to solve it somehow, I think, is fairly evident. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Gone World by Tom Sweaterlich. And The Gone World is sort of a detective story, but it is set in a world in which back in the 80s, the United States had kind of a breakthrough, and they developed a technology that allowed them to utilize quantum foam to travel great distances, so deep into space, deep into the far reaches of the galaxy, but also into potential futures. So there's no time travel into the past, and there's no time travel into the future either, really. The real world is today, which in the book is set in 1997, but they can also take jaunts into potential futures that might happen. So each time somebody within this organization that has kept this science concealed from the rest of the world, their bases on the far side of the moon, anytime somebody within this organization goes into the future, that is one possible way that things might turn out. And if they go again into the future to that same time, things will be different because it will be a different potential future that could emerge from the way things actually are. So it's an interesting premise. The main character is part of that organization. She's investigating a crime that involves another person who is part of that organization, which makes it a particularly dangerous thing. And hovering over all of the events of this protagonist's life and the things that she sees and does is a kind of end of the world scenario called the terminus, which seems to be getting closer and closer to the modern day. When they first started traveling into potential futures, they could go thousands of years and see what the earth might look like and what might happen to humanity 5,000 years in the future. But at a certain point, they could not go further than a thousand years without seeing this really, truly grotesque end of all things. And then that end of all things, that terminus, got closer and closer. It was a thousand years, then it was 500, then it was 200. And it keeps on creeping closer and closer to the present, and they're not sure why. So alongside the detective story and the pseudo-time travel element of that detective story of being able to pop into the year 2015 to interview people and find data about her current case that is actually taking place in the year 1997, there's also this looming catastrophe that nobody quite understands. So it's a real page-turner, really interesting book, some very interesting concepts, some very good characters. And the title again is The Gone World by Tom Sweaterlich. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. While there, you might also consider signing up for the free newsletter, which is actually just a collection of links to interesting things that I send out every Monday. Feel free to reach out on social media. I am at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and so on. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.